0: Please be seated. Let me invite you this morning to open your Bibles to Psalm 19 and also to 1 Timothy 1. We don't often use two texts, but uh, this morning wanting to focus our attention on a topic of uh, of both importance and confusion, Uh, uh, these two texts both highlight in a way that i think bring light to us uh, this morning and so we'll begin by reading in psalm 19 but uh, and we'll focus on first timothy while you're turning there let me lead us in prayer our father we come to you with thanksgiving this day we have come to lift up your name in praise also to be renewed in your grace we have come to celebrate those that you have brought into our family and those whom you have taken from our family and sent to the nations whether they are scattered and live permanently abroad or as in Jamie's case have gone and come back Lord we thank you for the work that you are doing in our church and in our lives But we continue in our worship, Lord, turning our attention to you, praying that you would speak to us through the word in accordance with your promise, that your spirit would speak to each of us who has gathered here today, that we might be enlightened by your wisdom, that we would be shaped and even pricked and shaped in our hearts by your truth, and that we would be conformed to be like Christ in whom we live and breathe and have our being. And so, Lord, may we worship you now by listening for your voice through the words that you have recorded for us and even those that you have given for me to teach. We pray to your glory and the good of your people in Christ. Amen. Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. more to be desired are they than gold even much fine gold sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb moreover by them is your servant warned in keeping them there is great reward now turning to first timothy the first chapter verse 8 the apostle paul writes Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The word of our God. In his third State of the Union address delivered on December 7th, 1903, then President Theodore Roosevelt had this to say to the nation. No man is above the law and no man is below it nor do we ask any man's permission when we require him to obey the law. Obedience to the law is demanded as a right, not asked as a favor. Now, who Roosevelt had in mind, I'm not sure. I I suspect, having some knowledge of history that he probably had in his head and maybe even in his sights, the robber barons of the day, people like J.P. Morgan or Andrew Carnegie J.D. Rockefeller, who he had embattled in war to take apart their companies so that they were not able to exercise what was widely considered undue influence, getting rich at the expense of many of the people. But whether it is them or not, what seems clear is this. In Roosevelt's eyes and perhaps in the public mind, it appeared that there were some people who considered themselves not only better than others, but above the law, to which Roosevelt felt the need to address. And so when I think about that, there are two things that I find both fascinating and somewhat disheartening about what Roosevelt was saying. And the first thing is this, is that it's both fascinating and disheartening to me that more than a century later, we are still having the same cultural concern. I did a Google search this week of Roosevelt's words, no man is above the law, and I was flooded with contemporary articles, all written within the past year by people and publications that are both on the right and on the left. Those who are writing from a perspective of the left had in mind mostly President Donald Trump and constantly reminding him that he is not above the law and he's therefore not free to do as he pleases. Those who are writing from a perspective on the right seem to have mostly in mind our Department of Justice, concern that there are people within that, at least in its leadership, who are not concerned with the rule of law or applying it to some, but not to themselves. But whether they were on the right or the left, what almost all of the articles that I read had in common is that they all show a concern about those who seem to feel that the law does not apply to them or at least they are somewhat confused as to the role of the rule of law in day-to-day lives. That was the first thing that both fascinated and disheartened me, but then as I, I thought about it, second thing that both fascinated and disheartened me is this, is that this is not merely a civic concern, it is also an issue in Christ's church. Because many Christians seem incredibly confused about the role of the rule of God's law in our day-to-day lives and it's something that we need to be clear about not only for our public testimony as many of you are probably aware Christians that are engaging in the public square come in and are trying to address issues moral issues of our day only to be dismissed for what appears to be a hypocrisy. Statements such as you don't even keep your own law. And then when addressing some significant issues, whether they are relating to marriage or other moral issues, someone will inevitably point out uh, you eat shellfish and that's prohibited in the law or, or some other thing. And it is in the law, it's in Levitical law about the whole idea of eating shellfish. And I've seen way too many Christians who just seem to just shut up and walk away at that point, not having an answer to the people who are bringing up this argument that they think when it's offered is kind of the drop the mic moment that there is no answer, there is no response. Now maybe they're not inviting the people to interview who would have the answer but even in day-to-day conversations i believe a lot of people are confused and don't about the role of the law and so they don't know how to respond when the accusation of our hypocrisy is brought up now part of the problem is it, there is a hypocrisy inherent in some cases because we don't keep the law and yet we do ask other people to uh, to keep the law or at least our laws and so if that's the case it, we are certainly subject to that but there is an answer to both their question as well as to resolve the problem of our own hypocrisy people are confused because of statements that we find in the scripture and we hear i hear have heard for years this statement quoting accurately we are not under the law we are under grace And it's understandable to some extent why initially some Christians might be confused by uh, that kind of quote, wondering if we're not under the law, then what use is there for the law? And yet we seem not to know what to do with what Jesus says when he says, I didn't come to do away with the law. So it's not just the culture around us that's confused about right and wrong and law and where the law is to be applied but also widely in Christ's church. Now even though that reality is somewhat disheartening I am somewhat comforted by the fact that that's not a new problem. I did find it in my own mind rather ironic. I'm disheartened by the fact that we're having the same problem culturally 115 years after after Roosevelt addressed it, but I'm comforted instead by the fact that the Apostle Paul addresses the same issue that we struggle with in the church to the church in Ephesus back in the first century. It's disheartening because you'd like to see us grow a little bit, but it's heartening because, you know, I might be an idiot, but I'm not the first idiot to come down the pike. (laughs) And we see clearly from what the Apostle Paul writes in his letter to Timothy, Timothy was the uh, pastor of the church in Ephesus that the Apostle Paul had planted. Timothy had been uh, the protege probably uh, for a time serving with Paul as Paul moved on, Timothy stayed and was the pastor. Issues had come up uh, to the attention of the Apostle Paul and this letter that Paul is writing to Timothy is for Timothy to be able to instruct the church and to build Christians in the truth. And in particular, what we have here at the very beginning of this letter, Paul's addressing the confusion that Christians had in that day about the role of the law for those who were under the grace that was secured for them by Jesus Christ. And so the mindset that the church in Ephesus had was very similar to the evangelical church of today. And so that gives me comfort. And yet we are also instructed because the instruction that the apostle Paul gives in this one verse is both simple and profound. And we see him giving two instructions that if we give careful attention to, it will alleviate a lot of the confusion that we have in our day-to-day lives about the relationship that those who are under grace of Jesus Christ have with the law that was given by the living and true God. The first thing that we need to hear is the Apostle Paul affirms this. We know the law is Good. And so one of the things that we need to be very clear about, no matter what Paul writes in Romans, he's not in any way contradicting himself about the negative, what we would consider to be the negative effects of the law, Paul is affirming and always believes that the law itself is never the problem. The law is good. And that's really what David, the, the, the psalmist, is saying as well. If you think back to what he's saying, just think about some of the claims that he's making about the law. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. Now, in one sense, that seems contradictory to what we later hear about Paul, because Paul says what well, the law kills, it doesn't revive, but we'll see here today how paul also will teach us and even in this verse is reminding us that the law plays a purpose in the renewal of spiritual lives in the day-to-day living it out and david goes on and as he says that the law not only is it perfect we are to desire the law and the precepts of god more than we desire gold in any you know case that didn't set well the first time he follows up and says then much fine gold in other words not the cheap stuff you find someplace because somebody might say yeah whatever we it's We should desire God's, it gives us more wealth. We are wealthier having God's law than we would be if we had much fine gold. And to him, he says, it's even sweeter to him than honey straight out of the comb. So David seems to agree with Paul when he says, we know the law is good. There's there's no middle words there. There's no way around that. This is what he is affirming. And it may lead us to ask this question, what is so special about the law that Paul's going to declare it to be good, even if there are some functions of the law that might be hard, painful, and that David would go on and write a song and declare that it's better than riches and sweeter than honey. I think the first thing we need to recognize about the law that is good is that it's an expression of God's common grace. It's the way he has showed that the world is supposed to function. It's the way the world functions best. Whether we like individual laws or not, one of the things all of us who live in a country that is a country of laws is that we are better off that there is a standard to which we can all appeal and we therefore are all shaped. Because the opposite of that, or the absence of that, is absolute chaos. Everyone does as they see fit. And there is no appeal. There's no basis, if there is no law, to be able to say, hey, you know, that gets on my nerves, that's wrong. You might be able to say it gets on my nerves, but that doesn't make it either wrong or right. God, by having given a law, says, look, this is the way that life is supposed to work. And societies that function best are societies that run according to a standard of laws, particularly if those laws are good laws. Several years ago, I remember seeing Francis Chan speaking, and he talked about the law, and it really, his, his very simple explanation of it was like a light bulb. There was no new information for me, but just putting it together, and he was, it, was, it was a video that he was walking along, He's heading to the beach, holding a surfboard, and he starts talking about the law, and he says, look, when God gave us the law, he wasn't trying to begrudge us anything. He said, when God says, do not kill, he said just means life would be a whole lot more pleasant if we didn't have to worry about somebody killing us when god says do not steal he's not trying to keep you from having things he's just saying life is much better when we don't have to worry about somebody taking things from us every law that god gives is an expression of god's common grace to us because the law of god is the way that life is to work, because the one who gave life also gave the law, and so it's the same one who is the engineer who builds something, also gives you the instruction manual. And when we have that, we recognize it's an expression of God's common grace, because that same law has shaped countries, and therefore people, whether they belong to Jesus Christ, whether they're the people of God or not. So we recognize that the law is good. In fact, the law is perfect as God has given it to us because it is an expression of common grace for our benefit. It's how life is supposed to work. But perhaps even more profound to me is the understanding that every law that God has given is an expression of the character of God himself. Now, you may not have thought about it in that way, God gave the law not just so that we would regulate the way that we live in order to to enable us to function together, but every law that God has recorded tells us something about God. It tells us something about his character. It tells us something about his values. It tells you something about his heart. Those of you who are parents, you, you understand this by the way that you raised your own children. You would set rules. Some of us had more rules than others of us for our children, but every rule or even the absence of rules is an expression of your values that you wanted to put in place to shape your children because you believe they would be better off if they embrace those. And so every rule you put in place or every one you thought was too restrictive is an expression of your values. Likewise, every law that God has given, even the ones that seem excruciatingly painful to us, it tells us something about the character, the heart, and the values of God. What does it tell us? I'm not always sure. I just know that it does. And part of the joy of growing in our relationship with God is to seeing how each of these laws point us to him we may be able to grow and to know him better. And so we see that the law that God has given is his expression of his common grace, and it's an expression of his character, and so the law is good. Paul tells us this, though, that we need to understand. The law is good when it is used lawfully, and I'm glad that the ESV has translated it the way that it's supposed to be, the NIV, which is maybe the way we would normally speak, saying the law is good when it's used properly. So we understand what that means, but the, the weight of the whole idea and that Paul, as he wrote it, says when it's used lawfully. It tells us that there's a way that the law is supposed to be used. It's not just proper, but the law itself should be used in a way that's in a, is consistent with the purpose of the law that God has given to us. And, and in that statement, we know the law is good when it's used lawfully. It tells us two things. The problem is not the law, but rather how we use the law. The problem is not the law itself. The problem is in how we use the law. Do we use it the right way, or do we use it the wrong way? Because it tells us not only is the problem not the law, but it tells us that there is a right way, and there are wrong ways for us to use the law. What are some of the wrong ways? I think most blatantly that we experience that confronted Jesus and that is common to the whole world and all humanity is when we try to use laws as a measuring stick that reflect our own goodness. We've all experienced people who think way too highly of themselves, and they're only too happy to tell you how good they are, and usually, whether overtly stated or very clearly yet subtly stated is, you're not so good, It's that they're using the law as a measuring stick to show you how good they are. The foolishness of this, as the scripture is very clear, Paul is also very clear, that none of us keeps the law. Those who use the law as a measuring stick to show their own goodness have clearly not understood what James tells us. In James 2.10, he tells us this, whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has been guilty of breaking all of it. In other words, we, if we're going to understand the law and the nature of the law that God has given to us, we need to understand it's not like a checklist and that if you score 90% on the 10 that we talked about this morning or read this morning, you know, you get an A. If you score 90% according to what James is telling us, according to the holiness of God, you fail because you break them all. They are inseparable from one another. They're like dominoes that you knock one down, they're all coming crashing down around us, and then we stand there in the midst of the mess, and sometimes, somehow, we have this idea that we can pretend that we are still good. And yet I suspect that it's those of us who relate to the law this way, or communicate as if we relate to the law in this way, that make others of us want to just chuck the whole thing because we inherently know there's just something wrong about that whether we're able to express it or not. We certainly find it obnoxious and unbecoming and unpleasant to be around. We don't want to be like that. So the problem is that we have a tendency to go the entire other way and then ignore the law and then we claim verses universally but out of context, such as, see, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. The law has no place in my life, is the way we interpret that. But that's not what the teaching of Scripture is. We need to recognize that to use the law as if it's a measuring stick to show how good we are is wrong, it's, it's foolish. It would be like keeping your bank account and only keeping track of your deposits and none of your deficits. It doesn't work. I'm an expert. Don't ask me how. Jerry Bridges, I think, wonderfully uses this illustration not only for the effect of those who use the law as a measuring stick of how good, but the experience of those who are confused and thinking that the law is there to show us what we've accomplished and therefore you know, we, we check them off as if we've experienced things in an internship. He calls it a performance treadmill. With the image that he's giving with that, he says that those who are driven by the law, who use that as the basis of their lives, they're very active. They appear very fit, but they get nowhere. In desiring to move on, whether other people see them as mature or not, they know that they're no better. They're not a different place in their life than they had been before. And yet, so often, they're frustrated because they've been putting in the time. They've been putting in the work. They've been putting in the effort. So why are my circumstances still the same? Why am I experiencing the same thing over and over and over again? And the answer is because they've put in their focus on the wrong thing. They have taken the law, which itself is good, and they've used it wrongly. I think another way in which we misuse the law is when we wrongly divide the law itself. Scripture tells us the essential nature of rightly dividing the word. The category of the law is also falls into that. Bible scholars recognize that the law that is given to us comes in three different categories. And so if this is not something that you are familiar with, if you take notes, then I would encourage you. In fact, if you don't take notes, I would still encourage you to take notes of these three categories. Because understanding the fact that there are three categories is one of the keys of helping us to understand the confusion that we have for our lives and giving answer for our own uh, hypocrisy and apparent hypocrisy. But the three categories of the law are this there is a moral law that we see permeating all of the scriptures, there is a civil law that was given to the nation of Israel, and then when they split off, uh, was the law also that guided Judah. And there is a ceremonial law that we find throughout the Old Testament. All of these are referred to at times throughout the Old Testament as the law, but there is a distinction that is is made, uh, and we can tell them by the focus, the intent that the particular laws have. The civil law was given to Israel to make them distinct. They were a theocracy, God was the king. Even when they established the kingship, it was ruled, to be ruled by God's rule. And so there were laws that were put in place and there were punishments that were put in place for the violation of those laws that were particular to that country, to that people. But both Israel and Judah ceased to exist because they wouldn't keep the law. They didn't love the Lord. They loved themselves, and each did as they thought was fit. They would first compromise, second ignore, and you know, before long, they were not a people under the law. God was patient with them, warned them, but God is just and as well as holy, and in time, his time, he sent them into exile, never to be heard from again. Now, some might say, well, but Israel's back. Well, the reality is this, is ancient Israel was a theocracy that existed as the people of God. Present-day Israel, no matter what you think of them, is a secular state. So to equate present-day Israel with the Israel of the Old Testament doesn't make sense because the whole reason that they were put into exile in the first place is because they weren't acknowledging God as their king. So then God would bring them back so that they could not acknowledge God as their king again? That doesn't make sense at all. I'm not trying to make a political statement, but just trying to make a point here, is that the civil law that was given to Israel that marked them as distinct from every other nation so that people would recognize Israel's God is wise and different than all of the other nations. But when Israel wouldn't keep God's law, they were, just like everyone else, they were worthless at that point to God's purpose. Apparently. Except that God was already working his purpose out through them. And even in their exile, God was working out his purpose. But the civil law is distinct for that nation. And so when they ceased to exist, there was nowhere in Scripture that says any other nation was to adopt these specific case laws and the punishments that go with them. What we find taught, not explicit verse, but taught throughout the New Testament is this, is that where the church began to flourish and God's values, that the General equity is the word that's used. The the principles of the law that were in Israel are often applied in those cultures, but not necessarily the specifics and not necessarily the particular punishments, just the principles themselves. Ceremonial law was those things that remind us that coming before God is not something we should do haphazardly. that God who is holy will not be in the presence of those who are unclean. And God in his grace showed the people all sorts of ways in which you could look at your life and realize there's still dirt there. And so therefore he had given them rituals and sacrifices to prepare them so that they could come before God. All of these were pointing to one who would come later, but all of these were also to show how important it is to take God seriously and to come clean, which is never by our own nature, only through excruciating, rigid, rigorous rituals. And yet the scripture teaches us that both the civil law and the, particularly the ceremonial law has been fulfilled in person of Jesus Christ. So we go before God, not on the basis of our rigid rituals, but on the basis of trusting that Jesus kept them all. That he who is God, who became like us, who was perfect in every way and yet was punished on our behalf. As we trust in him, we are not only forgiven of our sins, but we are declared clean. And we come to God when we come in a place like this. We come to God when we come in private worship on the basis of the name and the person of Jesus in whom we live. And if we are trusting in Jesus Christ, everything that was credited to those who went through the rituals then it is credited to us. It's not the rigidity of our practice, it is the focus of our faith that God declares us now clean. It's fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ and we therefore are keeping every one of those laws when we are believing in Jesus. And so if you're wondering how are you supposed to respond to the person who says that you can't talk about any other moral issue if you had shrimp last night, which I did, I think it was shrimp, could have been a crawfish, I don't know, it was big, whatever it was. But um, either way, I think I'm in trouble by the Levitical law, because it had a shell on it. But um, the answer is this, is that's part of the ceremonial law that has been swallowed up in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not by my rigid rigidity, it is by Christ's death, resurrection, and the gift of the Spirit that enabled me to believe in Christ. It's fulfilled in that, that was set established for the purpose of leading us to Jesus. And yet there's a third part of the law to which Jesus was, re, uh, when Jesus was referring. Even when he says, look, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. The fulfillment part is he did everything that was required in the law. But he says that I didn't come to abolish the law. And, as, and he tells that at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And if there's any question about that, he, he goes through the whole Sermon of the Mount and you recognize Jesus is upping the ante here. So you've heard it said, don't kill. I've said if you're even angry with somebody, then you're guilty of killing them. That is not doing away with the law. He's making the law tighter. He's squeezing the uh, the nuts and making it the vice close down on us. And there's no purpose in teaching such thing if he has no expectation that we will keep it. And so in Jesus' claim that he has both fulfilled and is not doing away, we see Jesus implicitly instructing us that we trust in him which is our hope and yet we also walk in him and walk with him and these are his ways. He has fulfilled the civil and he has fulfilled the ceremonial and he has accomplished the forgiveness of our violation of the moral but the moral law is still in effect for today. And Bible scholars recognize that there are three ways in which we relate to and use that moral law. First is that it tells us something about God. I'm not going to elaborate because I already have. When we see the moral law, things that God says that we are to do and that we are not to do, we should not miss the opportunity to ask, what is this telling me about the heart and the values of God? Because every law is an expression of his heart and his character. Second use of the law is this. It is designed to break us and drive us to the cross. It's not a checklist that we will keep. It is the holiness of God that one way or another we violate. Some theologians refer to it as like it's a mirror, as if it's a a mirror that you are able to see yourself perfectly, because the light of the law reveals everything that which is good and all of its flaws. If so, it's like the mirror that's Snow White in Snow White, that when you go to it and say, "Mirror, mirror, who's the, you know who's on the wall? Who's the fairest of them all?" The mirror of the law says, "It's not you. It's fairest, Lord Jesus." And being broken by the law and now standing helpless before a holy God, we have two responses. We can be angry and turn away, which is the message of Snow White. Or we can hope that somehow God would provide a remedy, which he has in Jesus Christ. Who through his own life kept the law and is the fairest of us all, but died paying the price that we deserve because we've broken God's law rose to give us hope, and by faith in him we are declared guiltless, pardoned, free from those sins. First use of the law is to allow it to teach you about God's heart, and, and second is allow the law to break you and to drive you to the cross. The law, and in another sense, is if you go to the dentist and they give you those chewel tablets, no matter how much you've tried to brush, it always exposes something, That's what the law does for our lives. And then the third use of the law is to show us as a guidebook as to how we are to live. Now, isn't that where we're in trouble? Isn't that the whole problem to begin with? No. There's a difference between using the law as a measuring stick and telling you how good you are, and one is using it as a road map to tell us the way you are to live. In fact, it goes even further than that because Jesus, you may remember as we looked in John, he tells his disciples and those who would follow him, if you love me, do what I command." He doesn't. Here's what we usually hear. If you want me to love you, do what I command. That's not what he says. Jesus, who's already set a people free. And now we're trying to figure out that how do we say thank you? How do we demonstrate that we love you for the love that you have given to us that we didn't deserve? And Jesus says, here's a good way. Do what I've commanded. And the ironic thing is when we do what Jesus has commanded an understanding that it is not a means of getting him to love us more or a measuring stick, but rather a way of saying, Lord, I love you. We see the law in a whole new light and recognize that the law is grace to begin with because it is God who has designed the universe, who has shown us the way that life is supposed to work, and it works best if we walk in the ways that he calls us to live but we're also aware because the mirror on the wall shows us that while I may be walking and I may be further along, I misstep consistently in such a way that I can't consider myself good, but I can recognize that I am graced. Those three uses, if we understand them, change everything about the way that we relate to the law We lay to Jesus and live our lives. And to wrap up with this, Charles Spurgeon years ago was approached by a, a young man who asked, how do you reconcile the law and the gospel? Spurgeon says I don't because there's no need to reconcile friends. The gospel is now our operating system. It has replaced the law. Now if you're technological neophyte as I am, you may have changed operating systems at one time or another, only to be consistently bombarded with reminders to upgrade the operating system you're no longer using. The fool in this life is like the fool that I am with my computer and thinks that I need to upgrade the law over and over again and let that be my operating system. It only causes problems. The wise one knows that they are walking by grace and yet the grace of God is evident in giving of the law as well. And when you can make that distinction, you are free. And you are on the road to joy. And So the applications here are very simple. First is preach the law to yourself every day in relationship with the gospel. Let the law break you so that the good news of the gospel is sweeter than honey. Obey the law and find the grace in it. Not to merit anything, but to give pleasure to God. And delight in the law. Because when you understand this, you recognize that the law of the Lord is perfect when we use it lawfully. Father, we do thank you for your word and pray that you would speak to us, guide us, and in irony set us free by use of your law. Because your law is under the authority of the gospel. We pray in Jesus. Amen. At this time-